Tēnā koutou nō mai, haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins is en route to China for a meeting with President Xi Jinping. What does it mean for the complicated relationship with our biggest trading partner? And come the election in October, what are the chances Te Pāti Māori might pick up another electorate? I think this time round, uh, it's well, a lot more known. Uh, people have seen our performance in the House, and I think there's a lot more excitement. But first this morning, we want to bring you up to speed with the extraordinary events in Russia overnight. After members of Russia's mercenary organisation, the Wagner Group, took over several Russian cities and threatened the Russian capital. Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's the leader of the Wagner Group, had called for an armed rebellion against the Russian military. But in a deal negotiated by the Belarus president, Prigozhin has now told his fighters to stand down. Last night, Russia's President Vladimir Putin made a televised address in which he vowed harsh punishment for those involved in what he called mutiny. As part of the deal to stand down, the Wagner Group's fighters have been guaranteed immunity, but the incident could have major implications for the war in Ukraine. It's now just gone midnight in Moscow, and we'll have updates throughout the day on the One News website. What does it mean to be equal? Health officials this week confirmed that ethnicity is now one of many factors being considered as part of an algorithm to prioritise surgeries. But instead of just focusing on the is it racist debate, this week on Q&A, given the focus on equality, we wanted to take a closer look at one of the key ways we map deprivation and population trends so that we can actually understand the makeup of and disparities between our different communities. The census. The last census in 2018 was a debacle. The former boss of Statistics New Zealand resigned after an independent review, found it was overly complex and ineffective with unacceptably low response rates, particularly in Māori and Pacifica communities. It's now three and a half months since this year's census day, but despite changing the strategy, investing in community outreach and lowering the overall response targets, the latest data shows more than half a million people still haven't completed their individual census declarations. Now, a quick note, these numbers we're going to share with you are raw figures, so they're based on the number of people that have returned to form. They're not the final official figures. But at this stage of the process, it's the best information we can access. The census officially closes in five days, and this is how the numbers are shaping up. At a regional level, all of the South Island has hit the government's 90% target for responses. But it's a different story in the North Island. No district has hit 90% as of Thursday afternoon. Northland and Hawke's Bay have the lowest turnouts by region. Of course, Hawke's Bay hit by Cyclone Gabrielle. But look at this, if you zoom in on Auckland, you can see South Auckland has some of the lowest rates for census completion. So what about ethnicity data? Well, Māori and Pacifica advocates have warned there still wasn't enough community involvement this year. So let's have a look at the numbers. For Māori across New Zealand, one in four have yet to return their individual census forms. For Pacifica communities, the response rate is only marginally better, 79%. Going from these numbers, the government has improved on the numbers from the 2018 census, but it still needs 60,000 individuals to fill in their forms this week in order to hit the target. Now, shortly, we're going to speak to the minister responsible, but first, reporter Ira Lee looks at the home straight push. Come for the kai. 
best day for the census. Like, if it wasn't for Manuro or Morai coming out to bring out, you know, the hangis, the coffee, the donuts, bouncy castles at the parks, you know, um, I don't think a lot of us would actually come out of our houses. <laughs> the big push to get people to do their census has finished, but Stats New Zealand has asked Manurewa Marae, alongside other whānau order providers, to target those hardest to reach. I remember opening up the envelope and just seeing all these papers and I was like, no! <laughs> the only thing that's really stopped me from filling in the census is just... We know that our census number out here in South Auckland are very low. Throughout COVID, we ran events exactly like this and it brought our families and community out um, and they got vaccinations done. After a low turnout in the botched 2018 census, Te Whata says Counties Monaco lost $130 million in health funding. It's something Pacific Health provider South Seas knows all too well. We want all the resources to come to, to these sort of communities. One of the things that we have to do better is actually explain the importance of filling out the forms. In Monaco, people who completed their census earned points to put towards fundraising for schools and churches, with money coming from local businesses, as well as getting 3,000 people to fill out the census. Just under 500 got vaccinated. There's a trust issue with, with our people. You, you don't know where your information is going, we don't know what they're saying is true. So our experience as a community sort of provider is that you know, you can't also focus on that particular thing. For example, the census, it has to be a whole family community event. But the approach has raised eyebrows among opposition MPs. Does the minister believe that it's fair that people who completed their census on time got no rewards, while those who didn't complete their census on time received rewards for doing so? The costs for the census have swelled from the 210 million announced three years ago to close to 320 million. Some of that money went into extra advertising, more staff and efforts in cyclone hit areas. At least $175,000 was spent on supermarket and petrol vouchers for thousands of people across the country. But organisations say the costs can be minimal if efforts are tailored to each community from the start. Yep, there is money behind this, but the bigger picture is, is actually seeing our families come outside here. In a few hours, Manurewa Marae collected dozens of forms in Randwick Park. Whānau, um, you know, when you do go into their space, especially their, their living spaces, you know, it's, it's intrusive to them. They would have got so many knocks on the doors for people to, you know, for them to fill their forms out. So let's not continue to do that and let's do events like this. There was no barriers once we started engaging with State New Zealand. They could have come and said, no, this is how we want to do it. But based on our experience, we actually said, look, this is what you have to do. I mean, 3,000 in, in three days, it's, it's not a bad record. Imagine what we could have done a bit longer. It's Q&A reporter Ira Lee reporting there. So in charge of this year's census is the Minister for Statistics, Deborah Russell. Kia ora, good morning. Welcome to Q&A. Morena. With five days to go, will the government hit its nationwide 90% target? Well, first of all, I actually want to thank everyone who has completed the census. That data is really important for us. Uh, yes, there are five days to go. We're sitting at about 89%, as you reported, for the country overall. Uh, whether we get to that 90%, 
we'll see. Uh, we've actually had 92% of households return form, so mm. we're a little bit over there. And in terms of getting a final count, we're not going to know that accurately until mm. we've done the post-enumeration survey, a bit of a survey work later on this year. We really can't report on that until or sometime next year. Okay, to be clear though, you need 60,000 people to return individual forms by the end of this week in order to hit that 90% target. Given the trajectory at the moment, do you think it's likely the government will hit the 90% target? Well, that's just the raw rate, yeah. and there's a whole lot of other ways that government can make up that data, and which they're plan we're planning to do in any case. Whether or not we get to the 90%, a little bit of a moot point at the moment, but um, can well, still no, be what's your, I mean, you're the minister, hmm. so what's your take? Oh, well, of course we're still aiming for that 90%. Of course you're still <laughs> aiming for it, but are, are you, are you going to hit it? Uh, we'll have to wait and see. There's a few days yet to go on that. And in terms of hitting it, that is very much a raw rate. It is not the actual coverage rate, and the mm. coverage rate is the one that matters. Yeah, I, I, so I'm going to ask one more time, and then we'll <laughs> move on. You've said we'll see a couple of times here. What is your expectation as the minister who's closely following these numbers as they come in? Mm. Are we going to hit that target? I have been watching the numbers very, very carefully every day. Uh, at this stage, it's looking like 89 90% for the raw rate, uh, but it's the completion rate. The, sorry, the coverage rate that actually matters. Right. Does that mean no? <laughs> it means we're still waiting for the last few days. We're not there yet. I'm sitting in there and thinking it's going to be 89 90%. We've got a few days to go. Why is it such a close call? Oh, you're right that it's a close call. Uh, we had hoped that we'd have gotten over that 90% before now, and that's what we were really aiming for. Mm. It is a close call because um, a couple of reasons. One, of course, um, Cyclone Gabriel blew right through the census collection, and that has made a difference. Um, but the other thing is something that you've pointed to in your lead-in to this item, which is we've had lower response rates than we really wanted from our Māori communities and our Pacifica communities. Why? Um, well, in terms of thinking about why we've had those lower rates, um, there will be a whole lot of reasons. When we've talked to people from our Pacifica communities, it's been things like people not understanding the census or perhaps needing someone with them to do mm. it with them in person. So we've needed to do a whole lot of community outreach. We've done that, but maybe we could have done more. OK, well, explain to me. You, you think you could have done more? What, what else could you have done? Mm, um, well, in terms of doing more, given that we haven't got the response rate we needed in those communities, right. in the Pacifica communities, um, and as you reported yourself, it was about 79%, then obviously we needed to do more. It's just a, a straightforward evaluation of what's actually happened. In terms of what more we could have done, um, it's easy to be wise in hindsight. Perhaps we could have done uh, more visiting churches earlier on and so on, but that'll have to be one of the things we evaluate um, as we go into the evaluation phase of the census. Yeah, Māori at 75%, even mm. lower than Pacific communities. Why is that so low? Um, again, it's a little hard to know exactly why it's not hitting the target we wanted. Um, there was a lot of work went into working with Māori this year in order to get a good census um, return rate. Um, we've been working directly with iwi in some areas. Mm. Uh, we've tried outreach through marae. We've had Māori involved in the design mm. of the census right from the start. Um, in terms of why individual Māori have not felt able to engage with the census, um, it's hard to know exactly why. We'll certainly try to find out. It is in line with declining participation in surveys and censuses worldwide, but even so it's lower than we would have liked to have had. Are you willing to stake your job on hitting the 90% target? <laughs> Absolutely. That mm. was a question and answer you delivered in Parliament just a couple of months ago. Mm. Will you stand down if the national mm. number doesn't meet the 90% mark? 
On the day of the census, um, uh, the last thing I was going to do was to undermine the census. So uh, when, a, when a reporter asked me of that question, I had to quickly think, am I going to undermine the census? No, I'm not. How would that um, have undermined the of, census? Uh, the last thing you want is a minister not expressing confidence in a huge activity that is taking place that day. Um, I still remain confident that we're doing everything we can to mm. get a good response so, rate. So, so, so will you stand down? <laughs> As I said, I think I was expressing every confidence I could in the census in order not to undermine it on the day of the mm. census itself. So will you stand down? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question, Jack. Why not? Especially when we haven't actually got the final... You, you answered... You answer, you, I mean, you, you were trying to express confidence mm, in, in, mm. in the process of statistics in New Zealand. You're the minister responsible. Are you willing to stake your job on hitting that 90% target? <laughs> I'm still confident that we're going to get a really good coverage rate from asking, the census. Sorry, are you, are you willing to stake your job on hitting that 90% target? Well, we don't know where that 90% target is. No, I'm aware of that. So and are you I'm not to stake going to stake job? my job on a number that we don't know yet. So what's changed between now and census day? Just, just lower returns than you'd hoped? Uh, in terms of what might have changed between now, um, you know, two months, three months on from the actual yeah, census Yeah, I mean, if you day, said on, on census day that you were prepared to stake your job and hang the target, and today you're no longer prepared to stake your job the On the day of the, the census, I was expressing real confidence in mm. the whole process. I wanted to make sure I didn't undermine the census. Um, and so what are you expressing of, now? I'm expressing confidence in the coverage rate we're going to get overall, which uh, we think is going to be something around about 97, 98%. But, but, but um, not, in the, not in the overall returns rate, which is well, what we're talking about here. The overall return rate is a very, very raw number. It's a tally rate. <laughs> and in terms of talking of the response rate I mean, rate you, to can't, the census, you can't honestly say to us that you're going to answer that question as, as clearly and effusively as you did on that day, but not answer it the same way today? Or at least give us an explanation why you've completely changed positions. I have to say, it's the first time I've heard one word being described as an effusive answer. <laughs> but and what I was doing on the day of well, the how, census how would you was ensuring uh, it was a, a, an answer that was expressing confidence in the census processes mm. that day. But you, does that mean that you are no longer doing that? I'm not uh, uh, prepared to... Uh, bet something on a result that we don't have yet and uh, on but, a but tally you were that we on don't census have. day. And we also need to distinguish between something that's the raw tally rate mm. no, I, I and the raw return rate, the raw rate that will come in later, and then what we actually get in terms of getting a really good data set. And I'm confident we're going to get a really good data set from mm. the census. Ten years ago, the 2013 census, we had a similar turnout nationwide. So it's slightly mm. higher, and I appreciate we're still waiting on those final numbers, but a much, much higher rate in terms of the Māori population. So 88.3% of Māori filled out their original forms. What do you think has changed in that decade? Mm. So the last uh, really robust census we had was back in 2013, as you say. There's a whole lot of stuff that has changed in the intervening 10 mm. years. Uh, worldwide, there's a phenomenon of uh, declining responses to surveys and declining responses to censuses. So we're not the only um, statistics bureau that's caught up mm. in that. Um, and in particularly in the last few years, we have, through the rise of misinformation and mm. disinformation, seen declining trust in governments. So I think it's part of that phenomenon. Mm. Off the back of the review in 2018, you were warned about outreach with Māori and Pacifica communities in particular, mm. weren't you? So do you take responsibility for those low return rates this year? Mm. So in terms of the low return rates from Pacifica and Māori communities, we have done a lot of work to try to connect with those communities. I know, but, so, it's still, but I mean, we're still looking at 75 and 79% as the numbers stand at the moment. So clearly those aren't good enough. 
Um, I think those numbers can give us a basis to get a really good head count. Are those numbers acceptable? Uh, we'd like them to be higher. But, but are those numbers the, acceptable? Well, the way we can get to an acceptable um, overall rate mm. is to use administrative data to, to backfill. So this is yes. what was done in 2018. We've got a better result this time, and we are able to go to other data sources to make sure that we've at least got a good population count. And unlike 2018, you've actually designed your census model this year around using those other sources of mm. data. But to be clear, is, is a is a... 75% response rate from Māori communities acceptable as far as you're concerned? In terms of that response rate, it's a really disappointing rate. We did try to engage with Māori mm. communities and to design the whole census with Māori. Clearly, we've got to do more work there to see if we can get a better result and, if and we do, do this do again. Do you as Minister take responsibility for those numbers not being higher? I would certainly like to see them higher. Um, obviously, I'm going to have to go back to mm. statistics and say, come on, guys, what do we do better next time? Do you How take can we make this better? Um, of certainly the statistics, uh, you know, statistics New Zealand and us, you know, we do need to sort of think what we could do better next time around. The overall cost this year was $317 million, so about $107 million more mm. than five years ago. Um, in terms of results, it's looking like we'll end up with a 6% higher response rate, so every 1% costs about $18 million. What have we got for that additional spend in terms of the quality of data? Um, it has cost a lot more this time around. Um, uh, partly that's because you know, last time around with a, a lower spend, we got to around about 80% of the population. But it's always harder to get the next 10% and then the next 5% mm. and then the, it's very hard to get to those last few. So it does cost more to get each uh, bit of echelon. chunk. Yeah. Each echelon's a nice word, yeah. Um, in terms of that, we have overall gotten an overall response rate that is good enough by the time we combine it with administrative data to get to about a 97, 98% coverage rate. So it does give us a good enough population count to go forward from here. So we will have a good data set for a whole lot of the stuff we do as a government. Why is it fair that uh, some people get paid for doing their census late? <laughs> um, uh, you're referring to the place where we started using incentives to encourage yeah. people Warriors to take the census. supermarket mm. and petrol vouchers. Mm. Do, do you think it's fair that people who've left their census are given Warriors tickets or supermarket vouchers for doing it late? Our objective in doing the census is to get a, 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 the best population count we can. And the great majority of us mm. just do the census, so um, fill yeah. it out. It's just part of what we do because we're New Zealanders, we participate mm. in it. And but so it is, does, is it fair, my question mm. is, is it fair that people who don't do that are given Warriors tickets and supermarket mm. vouchers? What was decided was um, around about April 11, the census board um, met and said it was time to start rolling out incentives. So there was always a plan in place mm. to use uh, just the ordinary processes and, and, and then to and add again, things so on. Sorry to pick on this question. <laughs> is it fair? What we need is a good data set. We need to achieve it by whatever means we can. And what we needed to do was to deploy a whole lot of different methods to reach into our hard-to-reach communities. You haven't answered that question. Is it fair? Most, you know, most of us don't need an incentive to do the census. I, most I'm, of us I'm aware do of it that. just because I'm aware it's our civic duty. Yeah, yeah. But, but is it fair? It's not a payment in terms of completing a job. What it was was to encourage <laughs> communities to come in. If we look at the Warriors promotion, yeah. I think 1,985 
people mm. got tickets to the Warriors. But in terms of that promotion, there was a whole promotion associated with it and a whole I, advertising I reach I, that went I've, to about 500,000 people. You're just giving me examples of the incentives, but you haven't asked, is it fair? Which is the question <laughs> I've asked. How many, three times? What we need, I'm not sure. But mm. <laughs> we needed a really good data set and the way okay. to get that, we had to deploy a whole lot of methods to achieve it. You know, right now too, we're actually going to the stage of sending out notices to people saying, actually, if you don't complete, um, you know, you are um, liable for prosecution. Is it, now, is it your expectation that people will be prosecuted? Um, in terms of prosecuting for the people for the census, uh, Statistics New Zealand does that. Obviously, mm. you don't want ministers deciding whether or not individuals get prosecuted. But is it your expectation, given the number sixty thousand people haven't filled in their forms, that mm. some of those people will face prosecution? Um, I've talked to Statistics New Zealand about that, and they've told me that in terms of prosecuting, they look for the people uh, in terms of prosecuting. It's not just not doing the census. It's people who've actively discouraged others from doing the census or have refused in a particularly um, aggressive way to do it. Right. Or people who have acted as barriers to um, other people doing it. Say like a boarding house manager who won't uh, distribute forms to people in the boarding house and so on. At, at, at how many events are you aware of in which Statistics New Zealand staff um, have held events and incentivised gang members to fill in their census forms? Mm -hmm. So in terms of those hard to reach communities, one of the things we did eventually was to work with a whole lot of community groups. Mm. In terms of the number of events uh, where we were hoping to count gang members, because everyone counts, um, I think there was half a dozen. Right. Mm. After the last census, the government ordered an independent review. From what we understand about this census, will you be doing the same? Oh, of course. You will be. Um, oh, in terms of an independent review, yeah. I'm not sure about independent yet. That would be a decision we need to make. But there will, of course, be a post-census evaluation yeah. and a whole lot of thinking going into whether or not uh, we should engage in this whole exercise again mm. or how we do it again in the future. Very quickly, tax policy is playing a significant role in this election, which I'm sure is a great source of excitement for you. Uh, as Associate Revenue Minister and a tax expert of sorts, what role are you playing in helping to develop Labor's tax policy? Oh, well, Labor's tax policy will be released before the election um, and I do sit on our policy council so I am involved in some of that. However, um, our, our tax policy comes from our party, not from ministers. Mm, but of course you'll be informing um, some of the decisions, I'm sure, and having a role in shaping it. Mm. Um, I, I went and had a quick flick through your book again, Tax and Fairness, yeah. um, which is the book you published on tax. And that page 133 quote I had to put to you, quote, we should smile when we pay our taxes. Do you still believe that? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I just want to acknowledge um, my co-author, Terry Boucher, here. Mm. Um, yes, our taxes contribute to all the things we like having as a nation, like our mm. roads and our health system and our education system. If we want to live in a decent society, we need to pay for it. What did you make of the Greens tax policy? Mm -hmm. I thought um, the Greens tax policy was very interesting. One of the things that puzzled me is they didn't seem to allow for behavioural responses, so I would need to dig into it a little more to have a... Um, a really good view on it. It's time to get serious about fixing one of the biggest uh, remaining inequities in our tax system. That's from you again. That's mm -hmm. a quote from you. In your observation, has anything changed in terms of public sentiment towards a comprehensive capital gains tax? Mm. In terms of public sentiment towards a, a comprehensive capital gains tax, a lot of people say that they um, support it on paper. Uh, on the other hand, we have tried three times as a Labour Party to put forward a comprehensive capital gains tax mm. and each time we've been unable to get it across the line. Um, so I think it's one of those things where people often say, yes, they support it, 
but they're not quite um, so certain about it when they realise it might affect them personally. Right. Do, do you think that has shifted at all since the previous times the party considered the CGT? Mm, I do think we have had somewhat of a shift in sentiment around capital gains taxes. Whether it is enough to then support it in reality is a different matter. Mm. Mm. Um, have you heard any more from Ming Fern this week? <laughs> uh, I haven't spoken to Ming Fern personally uh, since I was first um, given the delegation to look into his conflicts of interest. So I've been very careful not to speak to him in person because obviously that could conflict the process. Um, but I wish him well. Thank you very much for your time. Minister for Statistics, Deborah Russell. Kia ora. Thank you. After the break on Q&A, is China's president a dictator? Joe Biden says yes. Chris Hipkins says no. But what line will he walk on his first official trip to China as Prime Minister? Hoki Maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. As we go to air this morning, Chris Hipkins is mid-air en route to Beijing for meetings with the Chinese president and other senior government officials. It's his first trip to China as prime minister and comes in the same week as the US president described the Chinese counterpart as a dictator. Alex Tan is a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Canterbury. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. What will the prime minister be hoping to achieve on his first official trip as PM to Beijing? I think uh, what he wants to achieve is really focus on the trade and economic issues. Uh, as you know, uh, China is uh, our largest trading partner. A quarter of our exports go to China, and it has been a substantial source in the past uh, of our, for tourism, for students. And uh, with the economic uh, headwinds that we're facing, mm -hmm. I think uh, it's part of a formula, I suppose, that uh, it's business and economics and trade Mm. That certainly might be the easier things for Chris Hipkins to fo focus on. Obviously, in the last couple of years, uh, there have been significant geopolitical tensions yes. between some of New Zealand's biggest partners, the likes of the US and Australia and China. What role do you think those geopolitical tensions will be playing in conversations? I think they will. Uh, they will definitely come up, uh, and probably in private conversations for sure. Uh, but he, I think what I'm reading from what the Prime Minister has been saying, he really wants to focus it on the main trade issues, mm. trying to, you know, tippy-toe on the other issues. Uh, but it has to come up uh, mm. because that's the reality, right? I mean, the fact that uh, with COVID, the pandemic, and what has happened since then, mm. uh, it's a very complex world uh, out there, and he needs to express some concerns, I suppose. Mm. Uh, for example, uh, China being in the Pacific, you know, and all these actions uh, that is happening in the world today, yeah. What does the fact that this trip is even going ahead tell us about how China views New Zealand at the moment? I think going ahead uh, is that China, I, in my view, China does value uh, relationship with New Zealand. After all, we're, we're the first OECD country that signed an FTA with China. So uh, China definitely values uh, uh, New Zealand. Uh, and it's always been like that because we, we have been uh, an important contributor to, to, to stability in the region as well. Uh, throughout the last couple of years, as I mentioned, the relationship between China and some of New Zealand's traditional partners has deteriorated. How do you think New Zealand has navigated that period? I think it has been very difficult uh, in a way. Uh, it has always been trying to balance our traditional security and uh, ties with our, uh, our friends and our allies. 
And then on the, on the other part, the very heavy relationship, so, so to speak, with regards, particularly with regards to trade. So it's that balancing act that is really very interesting. Uh, I'd, I'd have to say though that I think uh, we have in fact not said that we are not part of you know, that group of friends and allies. Uh, that, uh, but, but we have to realize that we have, there's a, for a small state like us, or a small country like mm. us, there's a balancing act that we do need to do, do we need to do. Mm. Do you think we have struck the balance well so far, or there, have there been places where you think we've perhaps not done so well? Well, I think, uh, you know, it depends on perception. I think within the country, within the country, uh, the, more, the most recent perceptions of Asia uh, survey done by the Asian New Zealand Foundation mm. uh, has shown that what the government is uh, positioned pretty much reflect where the ambivalence mm. of public opinion in mm. New Zealand that 30% of New Zealanders view that China is a friend, 37% said it's a threat, and then, but many recognize that China is important mm. in the economic side, but also realizing that Australia, UK, New, uh, and the United States are very important partners for us because of, you know, our shared values, our you know, uh, hist you know, history of standing together in the international arena, so to speak. So I, it kind of reflects public opinion, I would mm. say. Language is incredibly important in these kind of relationships, and I want to play you a clip because earlier this week, the U.S. president described Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, as a dictator. Now, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins was asked for his thoughts. Here's how he responded. Would you agree with U.S. President Joe Biden's assessment that Xi Jinping is a dictator? Uh, no, and uh, the, the form of government that um, the China has is a matter for the Chinese people. In the House yesterday during... Do they have a say? Um, if, they, if they wanted to change their system of government, then that would be a matter for them. In the... If they wanted to change their system of government, that would be a matter for them, and he would not describe Xi Jinping as a dictator, which, given he was flying out in three days, probably made sense. What did you make of Chris Hipkins' comments? Very diplomatic, I would have to say. Uh, you know, the reality is, is that we know that uh, uh, Xi Jinping is a strong man. And uh, um, in the Chinese constitution, they even wrote people's democratic dictatorship. So you have a very strong man who heads a party that is hell-bent mm -hmm. to stay in power, you know, and has very extensive control of uh, society as a whole, right? So, so yeah, I think... Uh, uh, our prime minister didn't want to be put on the spot, I suppose. Mm. And, and like you said, uh, ahead of today's trip to China uh, would have, you know, kind of poisoned the, the welcome a little bit. So mm -hmm. he's being di diplomatic. Uh, but do, do, do the Chinese people have the option of changing their government? Not in the way we, we who live, who are blessed enough to live in a democratic country uh, have. I mean, here we can throw out the rascals, so to speak, right? Mm. They don't. Uh, their option is very radical change, and that would be that, you know, if you don't like it, then protest, revolution, you know, all of that, right? So it's much more what I would call non-conventional political mm. participation. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the U.S. government um, presents Joe Biden's foreign, pol foreign policy as being about building an alliance of democracies against an authoritarian world. And you need only look at his meetings this week with um, India's prime minister yeah. to, to get a real sense as to how they are trying to prioritise what they see as being um, democratic governments around the world. What do you think of that framing? 
I think the framing itself is uh, it's a bit tricky on the Asia-Pacific side, you know, uh, uh, because if you view the Asia-Pacific side, you know, like in Southeast Asia, for example, uh, there are not a lot of full democracies as such, mm. you know? So I would say that uh, there has to be a little bit about the shared interests mm. rather than just the shared values, right? So what I meant by that is that there are interests that are converging in this region. For example, uh, in South China Sea, for example, the worries along that area of a more assertive China. So if that's emphasized, then you bring in Vietnam, you bring in you know, the other countries that are not full democracies as such. And, uh, but if you're, if you're only talking about, you know, just democracy mm. uh, as a value of to be joining in the camp, then you might lose some audience. That's the way I look at it. Mm. So, so, so for a country like New Zealand that at least tries to take some sort of moral position on the international stage, how does it fit for us to have our largest trading partner not being a democracy? It's tough. It's really tough, you know, and, and, you know, for a country that is so trade dependent like us, we are looking for market access opportunities everywhere. Mm. And, and in a way, you know, when you think of why we are tippy-toeing on some of these issues, why our public, based on the, pub, based on the survey by, uh, uh, by Asian New Zealand yeah. Foundation is showing, is that if the world can if, for example, the, the Western Alliance or the United States, for example, can open up a little bit with regards to free trade, maybe contemplate joining CPTPP again mm. or something like mm. that, then it would, it would relieve a lot of pressure from our side, you know, because for a trade-dependent country, we are, you know, it, we are looking for very pure market access mm. for our sustainability. We live at the end of the world, mm. you know, uh, at the very, very bottom of the world. And, you know, we need to be reaching out as much as we can. And so it's very tricky for and, us. And if the United States is going to be preaching about the importance of trading and having close relationships with other democracies, then perhaps one of the things that would make it a little easier for smaller states is if it were to prioritise greater free trade agreements. Yes, and in my view, that would be a very important thing mm. considering the, 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 the big economic headwinds that mm. we're all facing today. And I, I think we have to be reminded also of history here. When we talk of the Cold War, mm. the Cold War was about communism versus anti-communism, mm. not necessarily about communism versus democracy. Why? Because if we look at the anti-communist alliance that the United States led, mm. many are dictatorships during that time. Mm. But what's the common thing? It's anti-communism. Mm. And what's the, what's the carrot? Free trade. Mm. Uh, New Zealand is undertaking a defence review, and obviously there's been a lot of attention given to China's role in the Pacific yes. in recent years. What would be the impact on New Zealand's relationship with China if New Zealand were to make greater investments in defensive assets? Well, it's not for China to tell us what to do. Mm. You know, we are a sovereign state. We have our own international commitments. You know, at the very least, we have our commitments to our own national security, our own protection of our own exclusive economic zone, plus, plus, there I say, our responsibility to our Pacific Island neighbors, right? Mm. This is huge territory there, mm. right? Many of these Pacific Island nations do not have the necessary resources to protect their own natural resource, fishing as a case mm. in point, right? And, you know, 
for, for me, it is important for us to have these assets, these naval assets, Coast Guard assets, and what have you, so that we at least can patrol and protect these exclusive economic zones from exploitation. So to be clear, you think New Zealand should be investing in things like drones to, to help monitor our exclusive economic zones? What, what about investing in, in things like naval vessels that can fire more missiles? Well, uh, you know, f- at, the, at, the, f- at the minimum for mm. me is that we should have an effective Coast Guard type defense, right. right? So that we can patrol it. Right. We can patrol these regions. Whether I, I leave it to the experts, whether we need missiles for that, we need, drones can be helpful just because you know uh, we don't need personnel necessarily yeah. on that on that thing. And we're covering such a huge EEZ. But yeah, I do agree that we need at least some mm. naval assets, Coast Guard type, if mm. you if you will, to be able to patrol this because. The competition for resource, mm. for resource, is probably the the one reason why countries go into conflict. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. We'll finish there. Thank you so much for your Thank time, you. Professor Alex Tan Kilda. If you want to contact the Q and A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can send us an email. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Shortly, the CEO of Naitahu tells us how the iwi thinks of its investments during this difficult economic moment. But next, the race for Tetai Hauru. What will it take for Te Pāti Māori to win another electorate seat? Kia ora we welcome back. The Māori electorates could be pivotal in this year's election, not just for who takes government, but for the power relationship between the different parties in office. And one of the electorates in play this year is Te Tai Hauru, where Te Pāti Māori and Labour candidates are going head-to-head. And as Fina Owen reports, a third candidate in the mix could bring about an unexpected outcome. Ani Tawaita Maira Itiropu 1814 Tara Tawaita is just one urban centre in the Māori seat of Te Taihauauru. It's a sizeable electorate as its 2023 candidates attest. Kafia all the way down through Taranaki as wide as Taumaranui. Tiro down to Putaruru, Tokarua, down to Mangakino. So you've got Palmerston North, you've got Wanganui, you've got Ruapehu, Rangitike, Taranaki, Wanganui, Manawatu, Horofenua, um, and Puriroa. Soraya Peki Mason is contesting the seat for Labour. So you're living here in the Ratana community? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I've been here for just over 20 years. And she's been a Member of Parliament for eight months, brought in on the Labour list after Trevor Mallard resigned. Her background is in local government, but in 2011 she stood for Te Taihauauru, losing to the Māori Party's Tariana Turia. Members understanding order 361C. Recently, the current MP for this electorate, Speaker of the House, Adrian Rudafe, announced he's off to the list, leaving the candidacy open. Soraya was selected. So it helps that Adrian Rudafe, who is currently the uh, Member of Parliament for this electorate, is your cousin. Yes, yes, it does. What are the challenges for this particular race to Taihauru? Well, you know, I'm running against some very strong wahine. One of them happens to be the co-leader of Te Pāti Māori. 
up the coast in Pātea, Te Pāti Māori co-leader Debingarewa Paka is contesting Te Taihauauru for a second time. In 2020, she came in 1,050 votes behind Labour. I think this time round, uh, it's well, a lot more known. Uh, people have seen our performance in the House, and I think there's a lot more excitement. So what's your point of difference here, if you look at the other candidates? Mm. I think um, our point of difference is that I am the um, only candidate in an Indigenous party, in a Tangata Whenua party. We uh, are really proud of our um, point of difference. We don't uh, have someone else that tells us that we're the value-added or um, you know, have to justify our, our values, our tikanga. Nationals candidate Harete Hipongo insists her Māori values are not constrained by her mainstream party. Recently, she challenged her colleague Simeon Brown's opposition to bilingual road signs. I spoke out because it's true to who I am, but tika and puno, but also the national party is of the view that there is a place for inclusion, diversity, Hareti, who held the general seat of Whanganui from 2017 to 2020, is known to be particularly conservative. This statue over here. But, she points out, walking through Motua Gardens or Pakaitore, she'd be the only MP in Parliament who's been an integral part of a 79-day occupation. Down here on the ground, but also representing those people who were charged and arrested and required legal representation, and I was it. This is the first time in 20 years that National has stood a candidate in a Māori seat. So that transition for me going from a general seat MP into a Māori seat is a natural, organic, and that's the right fit for me here and now where I am, bearing in mind the people and place that I come from. My whanaunga, Tariana, she reminds me too that under national governments we have had Kurukaipapa Māori, we have had Kohanga Reo, we have had investment in Māori broadcasting, education importantly, Māori Women's Welfare League, Māori wardens. Because I did read that she was, she was uh, promoting you or backing you or, or endorsing you. Yes, I read that too. <laughs> Back in Pātea, at the Marae where the hit song Poie was filmed, Te Pāti Māori co-leader is showing us the whare nui. That's my father's family, it's my father's dad, his mum, his brothers. See that um, black and white there, that's not Delvanius. Yeah it is, yeah that's Delvanius, that's his mum and dad. And Te Pāti Māori is pinning its hope on Debbie clinching the seat, Rawiri Waititi taking Wairiki again and Te Tairawhiti going to their new recruit. How's your third MP going? Oh, she's great. She's great. I mean, now I can actually say we're co-leaders of someone. <laughs> so, and she's just such a hard worker, has just got a wealth of experience. Her support and knowledge out in her electorate is just amazing. Uh, and it's been so you great. Do, you've, got, you've got high hopes that she's going to... Do oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have um, been realistic enough to... Uh, except that for the first time, uh, Te Pāti Māori and Māori may be choosing the next Prime Minister. At the mouth of the Pātia River, the co-leader is explaining that this is where politics began for her, sending a seabed mining company packing.
Looking ahead, all three candidates list common issues they want to address in this electorate. Cost of living, inflation is a big issue for us, health is another very big issue, housing is another one. So we'll be cranking into campaign season soon, what's your game plan? Yeah, well I can't tell you too much because people will be listening, but <laughs> fundamentally I'll be knocking on as many doors as I can. A lot of driving, because it's such a big electorate of course. Oh, so there is, a, yeah. yeah. We are acknowledging by bowing to those inside. Harete Hipango explains that the very first politician in this seat, or Western Māori, was from a Conservative Party. But how will national fare now against the high-profile Te Party Māori and Labour's dominance in the seat? So that may change, and the tides are turning. The National Party waka is on the water in Te Taihau. We're about to take our course, and it's for the people to decide. Fina Owen there in Te Tai Hoaudu. Such an interesting race. Hey, Akuna. Q and A is back after the break. Kaore Tefana, welcome back. From a deed of settlement worth 170 million dollars 25 years ago, Naitahu has grown its asset base to more than two billion dollars. That figure makes it the wealthiest iwi of those that have so far settled with the crown. But with significant tourism investments and the widespread impact of COVID-19, iwi leadership have found themselves navigating a period of significant disruption. I sat down in Ōtautahi Christchurch with the CEO of Te Runanga o Naitahu, Arehia Bennett. The whole concept and the development of Te Runanga o Naitahu grew up from the settlement. So um, it's important for us, first of all, to acknowledge actually how we got here. And when I think about the, uh, the many generations before who through their hard work uh, took the claim uh, to the Crown uh, and that eventuated in a deed of settlement, also the Tirunango Ngaitahu Act, um, it's important for us to know where we've come from. So as we move on through, we're nearly at 25 years since settlement and uh, one of the important things that we have to be mindful of continuously is that we are reflecting what our tūpuna, uh, our generations before us, uh, put in place in order to articulate uh, a better life for our whānau going forward. So we have this whakatauki, motato, a mokau, muri, a muri aki nei, which is about us and our children after us. And the balancing out of the, anything that we do in commercial, whether we are working in our wellbeing sector, our education sector, housing, etc., all must work towards um, the wellbeing, uh, the ongoing development of our generations after us. In other words, we're just seat warmers at the moment. Um, and the ability for us to work together in terms of uh, commercial acquisitions, commercial investments, must also look to the framework that Tarunanga sets for us around making sure that anything we're involved in enables the opportunity for our whānau, our hapū, our papatapurunanga to also be involved in that. So it's sort of not one or the other. Mm. Um, and the other thing is that we are we're an iwi and a whānau business and, um, you know, if things get out of sync or out of kilter, we get our ears pulled and quickly uh, brought back into perspective. But that happens less and less so um, as we have really clear frameworks to guide us going forward. It's pretty remarkable to consider 
Kaitahu's progress over the last 25 or 30 years. So the deed of settlement was signed, we received $170 million, and in the decade since, that's been grown to $1.9 billion. What do you think are the top lessons, the keys to that success? I think, um, you know, to give great due and respect to the designers and the architects of uh, establishing this foundation. Although we are steeped in our traditions and where we've come from, we're also quite innovative mm. and you will see uh, that from some of the many developments we've undertaken in terms of the wide uh, portfolio, diversified portfolio that we do have, um, that we're not afraid to actually stretch beyond those bounds to uh, to test out, to innovate, uh, to implement, and actually to make sure our own people are involved in those uh, opportunities. Can you give us an example of uh, an innovative kind of investment that Naitahu's pursued? Um, this week, uh, down in uh, Southland, we are supporting our papatapu runanga who are so invested in um, green energy. And uh, their papatapurunanga are looking at uh, what are the opportunities of uh, new green energy uh, ideas coming forward, whether that's onshore, offshore wind, uh, solar, but also looking at hydrogen. And so the papatapurunanga are coming together and they are looking at how they can actually have a role in the place in terms of their own region, harness the environment, uh, also work with in big international players mm. on whether we can have a footprint in uh, the green hydrogen space. And I think that is a fantastic innovation that we are seeing, uh, not only from the business side, the climate change side, but also um, from a teaching methodology mm. point of view where we've got researchers, scientists also getting along schools to actually build uh, and educate uh, young people being involved. So that's a, at that end. And if I think about it uh, um, at another end, um, I think about our Whairawa investment um, opportunity where back in the early 2000s, uh, pre-Kiwi Saver 2006, uh, we worked alongside uh, David Cagle and uh, Dr. Michael Cullen on developing our Whairawa um, long-term savings retirement um, fund. And today we have uh, about 33,000 of our Ngaitahu members who participate in the Whairawa fund. Uh, we've got about $122 million that's in um, managed funds. And what this is also doing is not only creating that savings incentive, but it's also about financial literacy. It's also where um, uh, mukapuna can actually benefit from their, uh, their kaumatua in terms of funding that they want to see uh, for their, their children and their, great, their grandchildren uh, going forward. How do you think about the way we define commercial success? Look, it's been a really, that's a very interesting question, and I've thought about that a lot. Um, I've been in this role here now uh, for about 10 years, and when I arrived, it was post-earthquake, and I can remember going out um, with some of our leaders uh, here in the commercial sector, 
and when we were tendering for infrastructure type projects. And one of the things that drew my attention very quickly was when we were tendering, there was actually no interest in the community wellbeing or the community development side. There was more of an interest in the commercial um, uh, acquisition or the commercial opportunities, which of course do bring economy, they bring a whānau economy, but there was no address given to the well-being of a community, uh, the participants in the community, families, the changes that they uh, have to make, and it really, that part really has stuck with me throughout this whole journey in terms of the way we're measured in society is always about um, your economic wealth. It's not about your, um, your health is actually your wealth. If I don't have health, if I don't, if my family don't have good health, if they don't have that opportunity to have good food, uh, a roof over their heads, good um, education and health, then I'm not wealthy at all. And so I always find this really interesting that um, there's an easy measure around, oh, you're successful because you're uh, this type of worth. Um, certainly that's one aspect and it has to fit within our framework of our values. But the most critical part to being wealthy is your health. And if you haven't got that and your, ha your family don't have it and your uh, hapu doesn't have it, then you've got problems going forward. What's your read on the economy at the moment? The, um, you know, we're moving into quite a tight situation. Uh, we also know that our whānau are saying to us that things are tight for them, the cost of living. Uh, we know in our own homes in relation to mortgages, uh, there is a worry about where that heads to uh, next. Certainly there is some, uh, a little bit of relief in some of the recent announcements around um, education, uh, health, even whānau, water, etc. But uh, going forward, the economy does look to be uh, quite tight and we must stay ahead of that. So this is such a period of, of, of change. How can an organisation like Naitahu work out how best to position itself? I think that uh, the first thing is not to work in isolation, uh, that we have to, as I said earlier, keep our ear to the ground. We have to be engaged and we have to be involved uh, not only locally, mm. uh, regionally, nationally, but actually worldwide. Uh, Ngaitahu spends uh, a lot of time uh, looking at research um, offshore, uh, we are invested in relationships uh, with a lot of the learning institutions uh, in, uh, in America, Stanford, uh, First Nations, uh, and other places where we're actually developing our own people to participate uh, internationally. That's Arahia Bennett, the CEO of Terunanga o Naitahu. Stay with us, Q&A is back after the break. Ko mutu, that is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thanks for watching. Nā mihi ki a koutou ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey te rāwaki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.